0: you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Good Friday. Kind of seems like a strange way to phrase things, doesn't it? The day that we celebrate a funeral is called good. How can death be good? And how can this death that was so painful and so horrible bring life? I wanted to take some time tonight to really come to grips with what happened on the cross roughly 2,000 years ago. It is horrible to go from Palm Sunday, the great entrance of our king into Jerusalem, and celebrating the day that he is king, to celebrating the day that he is a risen savior, without celebrating the day that he died. There's There's some sort of a a misbalance if we jump straight from the exciting to the exciting, from the happy to the happy, without truly understanding why this is a good Friday. And so I wanted to start just by reading a portion of scripture uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, which accounts um, the death of Jesus. And, uh, And after that, we'll look at what that death actually looked like. You can just listen to this scripture here. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, three hours of darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard this and said, he's calling Elijah. And one of them at at once ran and took a sponge. He filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. And when the centurions and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. No other circumstance um, would cause darkness like that, would cause the earth to shake like that, but the Son of God being crucified for the sins of all men for all time. And as we read through the scriptures, we read things like he was beaten, and we read things like he had trials, and we read things like he was hung on a tree. But do we really know what that means? Do we really wrestle with, the suffering that Christ endured, because the reason Good Friday is good is because we escaped something we deserved. It wasn't good for Jesus. It was good for us. What happened to Jesus was not good, nor was it right, nor was it just, nor was it fair. But what happened to us, it was the greatest thing that could ever happen to us. The greatest good that could ever happen to our souls happened because the greatest evil occurred on the cross. So we really need to wrestle with what this God-man, Christ Jesus, suffered for us because sin is a separation from God. We know that from all of scriptures. In the beginning of the garden, when there was sin, there was a separation between man and God. And God set up a structure by which that separation needs to be atoned for by blood sacrifice. There needs to be payment for that sin. When you wrong God, it needs to be fixed through sacrifice. All of the wrongdoing that mankind has ever done needs to be paid for at some point in time. All of the things that you have done in your life that were wrong to God and wrong to your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and your co-workers, they all need to be paid for somehow. And it would fall on your head to pay for if but Christ didn't take that penalty So all of the wrath of God that you read about in the Old Testament, all of the God who smites entire cities and wipes out the entire planet because of sin, all of that wrath was poured out on one person at one specific point in history, on one cross for the sake of the entire world. So that you don't get the wrath of God poured out on you, you get the grace of God lavished upon you. Day after day, regardless of your actions, if you confess Christ is Lord, you are covered by that grace. But what does that wrath of God look like? We don't experience it, right? So we don't, we don't know what Jesus went through. And today, we're kind of going to take a look at that to help us understand a bit. I'll back up the story just a little bit, and we'll look at the science behind crucifixion. Because we need to know what the human body goes through, what Jesus suffered for us in our place. There were um, a moment in the garden of Gethsemane. You're familiar with this. He went and he prayed, right? He asked three of his friends to stay awake and pray with him because he was about to be betrayed. He knew what was coming. He knew he would be betrayed and he was scared. He was a man like you or I. He had flesh. He had nervousness. He didn't want to suffer for this. He didn't want to endure the pain, but he said, not my will, but yours, God. So he's in the garden of Gethsemane and scripture says in Luke 22:44 that he was under so much stress as he was praying for this cup to pass that he sweated drops of blood. Um, there's a, a diagram up here of just the human skin, the fat layer, the uh, sweat glands and, and hair follicles and the top layer of the skin. What you need to know is there's an actual medical condition called hematohydrosis. Um, It causes the capillary little blood vessels underneath the skin. Under immense stress, the human body will cause those little vessels to rupture. The amount of stress you need to be under, the amount of emotional stress that you are going through, um, usually causes a heart attack, so you don't get to this point. Jesus was under so much emotional stress in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed that his blood vessels burst under his skin. And as he sweated, he sweated blood because of those blood vessels bursting. Hematohydrosis. Not only does this cause the bleeding, but it makes your skin really tender because you're basically um, raw underneath the first two or three layers of your skin. It's like a bruise all over your entire body that happens because of stress. And so we have our Lord, before he's even betrayed, he's already suffering physically for you. And then he was betrayed by a kiss. That's a stab in the heart right there. He was betrayed by one he'd poured his life into, one of the 12. And then he went on some trials. Now, these trials were done um, in the religious leader's house illegally of the day. You weren't allowed to do trial at night. You had to do trial before the people. But they wanted to get him kind of swept under the rug. So they took him to do some trials. Now, he was already sore from this hematohydrosis. But he walked from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way down this trail into the gate of the priest's palace right here. It's about two and a half miles from the Garden of Gethsemane to Pilate's palace to the, uh, to the legal fortresses where there would be the, the Roman trials. He walked 2.5 miles between Pilate and Herod and back again. All the while, he was being beaten by the temple guards, beaten by the Roman guards, and the extent of this beating, Isaiah says, left Jesus' face unrecognizable as human. It's not just that people didn't know who he was, it's that they didn't even know he was human anymore. His body and his face was so torn up by the beatings that you didn't know that was anything but a piece of meat. And this is before the flogging. He would suffered from the hematohydrosis. He was weak and he was tender. He had been beaten mercilessly because they could. And then he was flogged in the Roman trial. They tied him to a post, his hands up high above his head. And they took what's called a cat of nine tails or a Roman whip. It's got a wooden handle and these leather fingers that come out in various lengths. We're talking six feet of leather strapping. And at the end of each of these leather straps are bits of bone, little metal balls of irregular shape and size. So as Jesus is tied with his hands up, the guy, the guard, stands there and whips back and flogs him. And those little pieces of bone and metal beads, they kind of like fishing hooks, grab into the skin... And when they rip that whip away, it rips away not just pieces of flesh, it rips away strips off the back. And the whips come into the side here and pull back this way. So you're literally exposing the bone. And as they flogged Jesus time and time again, historical records show that in the worst of these floggings, they would actually expose the bone and then whip again, and they'd rip rib cages out of these people. That... Organs would be exposed at this point. The amount of bleeding that is occurring at this point is substantial. The human body only has 3.5 liters, roughly a gallon, of blood in it. You can only have so much wound before you start to become weak, um, dizzy. Your heart starts to beat differently than it did before. Most people died during flogging, before they made it to crucifixion. Most people suffered enough internal bruising, organs being ripped out, ribs being taken, that they died there while they were flogged, but not Jesus. Instead, after the flogging, they mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they put a robe of purple um, fabric on him. Now, the robe um, was a mockery, as was the crown. The robe is like a Guys, when you cut yourself shaving and you put that little piece of toilet paper um, on your face, um, it kind of helps the blood clot a little bit. That's what they did to Jesus. He was profusely bleeding all down his sides and his back and his legs. So they put this robe on him. And it helped clot the blood a little bit, um, cut down the bleeding. The crown of thorns they placed upon him, um, long. These are not like your little thorn bushes. These are long spikes, and they would wrap it in a tight way so that it was smaller than the circumference of the head. And they would put it on Jesus, and they didn't just set it on him. They pressed it into him. And those thorns would pierce the scalp and pierce the nerves inside the head, causing excruciating pain from the head. And we all know head wounds bleed a lot. Um, They just continue to bleed. There's so many blood vessels in there. So they mocked him. They called him King of the Jews, They asked him to save himself because if he truly is God, why not? And then they did something even more horrible. They ripped the robe off his back. So where the blood had started clotting and there had been some healing occurring in those little moments, they ripped it right off again and fresh blood started pouring out from those wounds. And so at that point, they hoisted the crossbar on him and said, now we're going to make you walk all the way to Golgotha. We're going to cause you to carry this 75 to 100 pound rough piece of wood on the back that is missing ribs and is exposed in horrible ways. At this point, the physical body was usually in shock. If you survived the flogging and you were able to carry the cross, your body was in shock. It was not long before you die of loss of blood. Jesus, scripture tells us, is unable to carry the cross on his own. The physical body just can't take that kind of stress. Someone had to come along and they made someone else carry this cross for him. Now this cross wasn't something that um, was brand new. They didn't cut a tree down just for Jesus. This was a crossbar that had had numerous criminals nailed to it in the past. There were blood stains from other people who had died. There were bits of flesh on there. There were old nail holes. This was something that was dirty and detestable and horrible. They placed it on the back of Jesus, and he carried it as far as he could. And um, when he fell um, carrying the cross, um, it fell on top of him and uh, and crushed his rib cage. Scientists say the force of this crossbar falling on you is like you're going 60 miles an hour down the road without your seatbelt on, and you hit your steering wheel when you crash into a tree. That kind of force ruptures things in your Chest cavity. Um, It can cause a heart attack. It can cause internal bleeding. Jesus fell several times, crushed by the weight of this, before they said, someone else will carry this for you. Then he was crucified. He was um, placed on his back. The dirt rubbed into him. The rocks rubbed into him. They stretched his arms out on either side of him to that crossbar that he carried. And they took these nails that were roughly seven to nine inches long. They were not new. They were used. They had been used multiple times, nailed into people and then ripped out after the people had died, used over and over and over again. Now they weren't placed in the soft meat of the hand like you often see in movies, that nice little picture of inside the palm of Jesus. If you hung someone there, the weight of their body would just rip right through their hands and they wouldn't be crucified anymore. They'd just fall right off the cross. Romans, taking the idea of crucifixion from the Persians, did something worse than that. What they did is they took these nails and they put it in the wrist between the two bones of the forearm and the hand bones. What this does is it severs a nerve that runs up your arm called the median nerve. This causes paralysis of the hand and a burning sensation that is like none other. It causes minimal bleeding and it doesn't break your bones. It's literally just meant to keep you up there and cause the most pain possible. Then they, once they'd nailed his two wrists to the cross, they lifted this crossbar up. It wasn't a cross like this, it was just the cross beam. And it had a hole in the middle. And they hoisted it up over and they dropped it. So the dropping jolted him. They'd also nailed his feet in between the bones of the feet. Again, it, you know flexed his feet to a certain degree, 45 angles, and his knees were at a 45 degree angle as well. They were nailed with seven to nine inch nails between the second and third metatarsal bone. It severs the, um, the pedal artery, but bleeding isn't sufficient to kill at that point, just again to weaken. And when they lifted him up and dropped him on, it dislocates both shoulders, usually dislocates the elbows and the wrists, And your arms each are stretched six inches longer than normal. So you're kind of hanging there. It's the worst possible thing you could endure. The results of the crucifixion, um, the position that you are in on the cross um, with the little foot pedestal underneath your feet so you're kind of propped up on it at this weird angle and your hands and arms are dislocated, you can't breathe when you're in the dropped, relaxed state. The weight of your body is crushing your organs on the inside. So in order to breathe on the cross, you have to stand up, press upward with your thighs, which presses downward on your feet, in order to get a, just a breath of air. The full weight is born on your thigh, um, and so your legs give out after a time. At that point, your weight is only supported by the arms, which, if not dislocated, then will be. And eventually, your oxygen levels drop because you are not getting enough air. The CO2 levels in your body rise, and that makes your heart beat faster. If you've ever held your breath for any long period of time going through a long tunnel, you know that your heart starts to beat differently when you do not get the right kind of oxygen. You're trying to get the oxygen to your vital organs. Decreased oxygen also damages tissue. Capillaries begin to leak a watery fluid as you lack oxygen. This results in a buildup of fluid around your heart and around your lungs. It's a watery-like substance. And then, given enough time, with enough pressure of this fluid, you suffocate on the cross. Unable to lift up to get air, you suffocate. And if death takes too long as it did with some criminals, sometimes people hung upwards of nine days on the cross. Soldiers would come by with a long piece of wood and they would look up at you and just break your legs so that you had no no choice but to die. You suffered and died at that point. But Jesus, the scripture tells us, not one bone of his body would be broken during the crucifixion and they did not break his legs because he yielded his spirit willingly prior to them breaking his legs. That is what happens to the body on the cross. That is the science behind the crucifixion. That is the worst possible kind of death. There's a word we use in our English vocabulary, excruciating. That's an excruciating pain someone endured when they broke their bone. It was excruciating when they were suffering from a heart attack. That word comes from crucifixion. The pain was so horrible and so detestable was the idea of crucifixion. They needed to come up with a word to describe it. Excruciating from the cross. That's how that word was developed. When you use the term excruciating, you're literally saying this pain is of the cross. It is too great for me to bear. That is excruciating. And that is what Jesus, the man, suffered for you in place of you for your sins that night. But not only did he suffer this physical torment, he said seven things from the cross which give us an insight into the heart of God for us and the emotional turmoil that Jesus was going through. Because he didn't just suffer physically, he suffered emotionally on the cross for us as well. He said seven things on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he said to the man next to him, you will be with me in paradise. He said to his mother and to one of his disciples, behold one another. She will be your son, or she will be your mother and you will be her son. Take care of her. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I thirst. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. And lastly, he said, it is finished. And these are great sayings. They're not all found in one gospel account. You have to look at all the gospel accounts to find all of these sayings. And I want to share with you a little bit behind these things. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And this was the reason Jesus was on the cross because we didn't know what we were doing, right? We were blind in our sin, and we didn't know all the things that we did to hurt God. So he came to forgive, regardless of the sin that was done, regardless of the sin that would be done. Jesus came, and as he looked out over the people, he said, just, Father, forgive them. That's why I'm up here. That's why I'm suffering. Forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. These are the words of the priestly, Jesus, who, in the midst of pain... Suffering on the cross, all of the things we just talked about, he cared enough for you to say, forgive them. He cared enough to look out from the cross and have love for the people that nailed him to the cross, for the people that were literally at the foot of the cross saying horrible things to him. And a cross wasn't you know, 12 feet above the people. It was eye to eye you could walk up and look Jesus in the eye while he was on the cross. So they'd walk up to him and they'd spit on him and they'd make fun of him. And all the while he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it says in scripture, greater love has no man than this, that he should lay his life down for another. And it also says this, while we were still living in our sin, Christ died for us. So that the sin we commit doesn't separate us from God. So that the sins we commit Don't give us that kind of penalty forever and always. Jesus himself took that pain and he took the full wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. And all the while he said, forgive them. And then there were two criminals on either side of him. One cursed Jesus and said, You're God, save yourself. You are no better than I am. We deserve this. The other man looked over at Jesus and said, I've got nothing but you. And Jesus turned to him and said, you'll be with me today in paradise. To the other, you will not be with Jesus in paradise on that day. What a hope that would be to be that man on the cross to hear today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not nine days from now. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That man had hope for life eternal. And this is the call to us. Are you the man on the left or the man on the right? Are you the man that despises Christ for what he's doing for you? Or are you the man that says, I need you Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. We either trust Jesus or we curse Jesus. And it needs to be said tonight that choosing not to trust Jesus, choosing to say, oh, wait, I'm not going to do it now, I'm not sure, is still a direction no. It's still in the negative. Not saying yes is saying no. Not loving and trusting in him He's saying that his suffering wasn't enough for your sins, that you still have to pay the penalty somehow, that you have to purchase yourself back somehow, that you have to pay enough penance in your own actions, when in reality God paid all the penance for you on that cross. He paid a high price so he could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. There were all these laws that were given for mankind to live by. And Jesus kept them all perfectly. He was the fulfillment of the law, breaking not one of them. And even on the cross, he honored his father and mother. He honored his father by going to the cross, because it was his father's will, not his own. And he honored his mother by saying, listen, at this point in time, she was probably a widow. She needed someone to look after her because her eldest son was dying for the sins of the world. So he looked down and he said, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. This is your new family. Take care of one another. Even as he was dying, Jesus upheld the law and gave us an example to live by. When things are difficult, we can still follow God. And then he said this, He looked up to heaven and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to be forsaken is to be abandoned, to be left alone with no help and no hope and endure affliction with no comfort whatsoever. Then Jesus, as he suffered on the cross, struggling to breathe, he had to lift up every time he spoke. He lifted up and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he is God, right? Jesus is God became man. He is both man and God, perfectly married together. How can God forsake himself? How can God turn his back on God? This is a question that is very difficult to answer. And on this side of heaven, I don't know if we can explain this one. All that we can say in faith is that Jesus willingly came to stay on that cross for our sins, so that at a point and time in history, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. God the Father ripped himself away from Jesus Christ, so much so that Jesus, who had walked with God, talked with God, prayed with God, received everything from God, suddenly was receiving nothing from God but wrath. Suddenly was receiving nothing from God but emptiness and no hope and no comfort for that time on the cross. And that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken. And this was simply a picture of what they did in Old Testament worship. On the Day of Atonement, which is the day that Jesus died, the Old Testament priest would take a goat. He would lay his hands on the goat, and he would say a priestly prayer. And in that priestly prayer, he would say, All of the sins of all of the people of the nation of Israel are now upon this goat. Then they would take the goat and they would send it out of the camp of Israel. And it would go away into the wilderness never to be seen again. And then they would take another goat and they would sacrifice it on the altar to God. Saying, God, let this be the covering for our sin. So that we might not be forsaken and abandoned as that goat is into the wilderness. But that we would be covered by your blood and received into your presence. And Jesus is that spotless lamb, and He is the one that sacrificed Himself for the sins of all of the world so that we would not be forsaken and abandoned. He would for a time. Scripture says this He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds heal you. And in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why it's Good Friday. In Isaiah, it was God's will to crush him, not you. And that his life was the offering that was needed for your sins. And because a holy God cannot be in sin, when all of the sin of the world was heaped upon Jesus, the Father turned his back, forsaking him for a time so that the penalty of all of our wrongdoings could be paid in full. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So Jesus, willingly taking the weight of the sin of the world on himself, was abandoned so we would never be abandoned. By his blood we are made clean, and by his grace we receive forgiveness. And his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are simultaneously filled with the most suffering ever and the most sweetness ever. Our sin was so great that God had to abandon his son and let him die for them, but it's in his abandonment that we are found, that we are made whole. Prior to his death, he said this I thirst. Can you imagine? Have any of you ever bled profusely enough to be dehydrated? When you donate blood, they ask you to drink a lot of water. Um, I personally have been to the point in life where I've internally bled to the point that I questioned survival. I got very, 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 very thirsty because blood was coming out. Liquid was leaving. I needed water. Jesus on the cross cried out, I thirst. And it's mentioned only briefly in scripture. And we look over this as just Jesus was thirsty. Yes, he was thirsty, Well, what happened here was quite probably one of the most detestable moments on the cross, in my opinion. All of it was detestable, but this is something we don't know about culturally, because we don't live back in that day. Um, Scripture says they gave him something called sour wine on a stick, sponge, dipped in sour wine, lifted to his mouth, and they took this um, and shoved it in his mouth. And more often than not, we stop there and we think, well, that's nice. Someone gave him something to drink because he was thirsty. Um, But in reality, um, this was not a moment of respect. This was something of um, humiliation once again. Because what you need to know about this time in history is there wasn't running water, really. There wasn't plumbing. There wasn't toilet paper. So if you were rich enough, you went to a public bathhouse, and it was basically this big marble slab that had holes cut in it. And rich people didn't like to wipe themselves. And so they hired servants to have a stick with a sponge on it. And the servants would come after uh, the rich people had done what they do in the bathroom. And the servants would scrub them clean and put that stick and sponge in a bucket. Now what they realized over time is that diseases were getting spread. So they started to put sour wine or vinegar as an antiseptic in the buckets. That smelled bad, so they put a little myrrh or, or something uh, sweet in there, an incense, so that it covered up the stink of that bucket. Now, soldiers who went to war, they would carry a bucket with this stick and sponge as they went to war. Golgotha was way out of the city limits. It was up on a hill. The soldiers that were posted there need some way to take care of their daily needs as they were out dealing with the crucifixion, so they would have a bucket with vinegar in it and a stick. And a sponge. And so now when you read these things that say, I thirst. And you see that they took a stick with a sponge on it. And they put it in his mouth. That's so detestable. That's one of the worst things that they could do. See, when we sin, we sin against God. And that's why the psalmist says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And that's why God came to earth. That he was on the cross dying for the sins and they couldn't get him to shut up because he kept saying things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what did they do? They shoved their toilet brush in his mouth to try and get him to be quiet. The last taste on the lips of the creator of the universe was a toilet brush. And then he said this, having had enough, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No greater possession does someone have than their spirit. It's something very personal. It's yours. God gave it to you. We each get one. And Jesus, nearing his willing death, knows the time of suffering is closing. And he speaks aloud to the only one who can come for him, even as he's separated from God. And Jesus quotes the words of David from Psalm 31. A psalm David wrote when his enemies were encamped around him, but David had done no wrong. They were wrongly accusing him. Jesus found his life and his identity shaped by the Old Testament scriptures, and his words chose that he showed he had submission to God. He trusted God with his life and with his death. His death was an abomination, evil at its worst. But Jesus yielded to this and willingly laid his life down. It needs to be said no one took Jesus' life. No one killed Jesus. No one forced him to go to the cross. He willingly, each step of the way, submitted to God's will, and no one took his life. He chose the moment of his last breath. He willingly gave his spirit to God. He not only trusted God with his life and with his ministry, but he trusted that God would deliver him from the death which he was about to enter into. In John 10, Jesus says this, for this reason the Father loves me, that I will lay my life down so that I can take it up again. No one has the authority to take my life from me, but I'm going to lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The Father has given me this authority. And so Jesus on the cross says, you all are sinning, but I have the authority to lay my life down for you, and I'm going to lay it down for you, even though... You're sinning. And then the last thing that he said in John nineteen thirty, It is finished. It is finished. All of the suffering. All of the pain. All of the humiliation. All of the years of ministry. All of the good times he'd spent with his disciples. In that moment, Jesus' death occurred. Now this word... Um, It is finished is one word in the original language. It's the word tetelestai. This is such a powerful word. Again, it's something that we have to understand in the cultural context, like the stick and the sponge, so that we know what is really being said, what Jesus was really saying when he said it is finished. He said this, tetelestai. And this word had three meanings in this day, three meanings in the day that Jesus walked the face of the planet. The first was a term that servants would use, tetelestai. A master would give a servant a task. And so the servant would go and do that task, whatever it was, feed the donkeys or bring water in for the house at night. And when the servant had done all it, the master had asked of him, he would return to the master and he would simply say, tetelestai, the task you gave me is complete. I fed the donkeys and I brought the water in for the day. Tetelestai, the task is complete. The second way this term was used was a term of commerce. When an individual owed a debt to another person and that individual went to go pay the debt, he would pay it in full. And the one who received the full payment would say tetelestai and stamp tetelestai on the debt document saying the debt you owed is paid in full. Tetelestai, the debt is paid in full. The third way this term was used was a priestly term. When the time of sacrifice yearly would come about, and they would need that one spotless lamb, they would send multiple servants into the fields to find the lamb without blemish, the lamb without spot, the perfect lamb to give to God. And so as all the shepherd boys are out looking for the lamb, the one who finds it would grab it by the legs and hoist it above their head and shout as loud as they could, Tetelestai, the spotless lamb, for the sacrifice is found, Tetelestai. And so Jesus, when he's on that cross, what he's saying to those around him is this, and they would have heard it as such. Father, the task you have given to your servant is completed. I have done all that you have asked me to do in this earthly place, even unto the point of death. This sin debt that the people have racked up against you, Father, It's paid in full. I will pay it for them. I pay it with my blood. The debt is gone. Tetelestai, it's erased. And Father, I am that spotless lamb and the sacrifice that once needed to be offered year after year after year is now permanent. Tetelestai, the spotless lamb is found and raised above the people. Tetelestai. And now people enter into the new covenant through Jesus' blood. The spotless lamb who was slain to tell us, die. It is finished. And the veil was torn in two, and the earth shook, and the sky went dark. And those around him said, This was the Son of God. And that is Good Friday. It's Good Friday because we didn't endure any of that. We deserve every bit of that, and we get none of it. What we get is grace, what we get is love, what we get is hope, what we get is eternal life, despite what we do. And what we're going to do now is we're going to praise God for that. We're going to worship God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, because he has said to it is finished. And so as we are led in worship, what we're going to do is just open this time for prayer. The songs we'll play, we will sing, we will pray, we will do whatever we need to do to be right with God, but make no mistake. You've heard the gospel tonight, that Jesus Christ, paid the, Jesus Christ paid the cost for your sins. You have a sin debt outstanding. It needs to be confessed to Christ. Tonight is the night that you can find relationship with him. Not wrath, but love. Not separation, but welcome. Not past pain and suffering, but future hope and glory. And you can do it all here at the foot of the cross. So I would say as we worship, there's hammer and nails and red paper. I urge you to come. Do something symbolic of what Christ did for you. Nail a little piece of red paper to the cross. Symbolic of what Christ did for your sins. And then come and partake in the communion elements. A simple bread and a simple cup. In which Jesus said this. Before he was betrayed, he took a little bit of bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is the bread of the new covenant. This is my body which will be broken for you, and they didn't get it, but we get it. His body, it was broken. Really broken for us. And then he took that cup, and he said, drink this. This is the cup of the new covenant, the Tetelestai covenant. Take this cup and drink, because it's my blood that's been poured out for you that you can enter into this new covenant. Take this and remember what I did for you, because every single drop of Jesus' blood poured out. All 3.5 liters, roughly one gallon of blood. None was left. When they pierced his side, water ran out. The last drops of blood, all of that pressure in his chest cavity, poured out for you. So as we worship, pray, come forward, receive the elements as the Lord would have. And I would say this, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I will tell you something. This is the greatest thing you can ever do with your life. You will hear test It is finished. Your debt is paid. You have hope. You have joy. And I guarantee Easter will have a whole new meaning for you this year as you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, where he conquers death for all time, for all people, and gives us that everlasting hope. Let's worship. The Lord always places a burden on my heart for people who need to, need to get with Jesus. First time, a hundredth time, one millionth time, we can never come to this cross enough. We can never come to this cross enough. So I would say this to you, come to this cross again and again. Scripture says this, what can we say to the things that have been brought against us If God is for us, who can be against us, right? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all good things? This is the hope that we have. This is the Good Friday message. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. God justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and what we'll celebrate on Easter, more than that, was raised seated at the right hand of the Father, so that nothing, death, life, angels, rulers, things in the future, things that are in the past, any powers, heights, depths, nothing can separate us from the love of God, because he said, to Tetelestai, it is finished. I'd like just to close in prayer, we'll sing one more song. And I'd ask this, if you would all just close your eyes. And if there's anyone in the air between you and me and God that needs needs Jesus in a new way today, for the first time or the hundredth time, would you just wave an arm in the air so that I can pray for you? Yes, thank you. I see your hands. You need a filling of the Holy Spirit this evening. Thank you. Father, we don't fully understand what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. Something great happened for us. The transaction wasn't fair. It wasn't right. Someone else died for my sins. But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being willing to walk that long road, to be intentional in the way that you died, so that the sins of all people would be forgiven, that we all might have hope and life with you eternally. Lord, I pray for the people in our community, the 7,000 that don't yet know you, but you died for them, the 7,000 who fall into that category of father forgive them they don't know what they're doing lord would you work in their lives too would you give them grace and hope and mercy and abundance they might look upon you and see a lord and a savior and a hope a rescue from circumstances beyond their control lord we put our faith in you we trust you and we love you so much thank you amen